Mindfulness Mode 484. What we have to be with and be mindful of and then immersed in is something that's actually kind of unpleasant. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, we're talking all about relationships today, and we all need to work on our relationships from time to time and make sure that they're they're on point and they're the way they need to be and that we're having good communication. Well, speaking of communication and relationships, I have an amazing relationship expert with me today. I have Figs O'Sullivan. Hey, Figs, are you in hey. mindfulness mode today? I am. Thank you, Bruce. Really honored to be on your show. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. It's so great to have you here. Figs O'Sullivan helps couples study their moment-to-moment experience and understand the dynamic they create together to help them be more present with their self and with each other. And that's where mindfulness comes in, being present with yourself, being present with each other. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist and is a passionate entrepreneur. He's driven to change lives for the better. And he's constantly working on his psychotherapeutic approach and is passionate about helping couples love each other more and feel totally connected. So all of that stuff is absolutely phenomenal, and it must be an incredibly rewarding career that you've chosen to help people be more connected. Is it incredibly yeah, rewarding? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's I, I always count my lucky stars that what I get to do, you know, to make a living helps people so much. Oh yeah, it's phenomenally rewarding and. And really dynamic, like every day, every hour is is different. And there's no, you can't ever dial it in. You know, like you, like I have to be at my best and fully, fully present every single hour that I'm sitting with a couple. You know, I can't have any pre-planned or preconceived notions about how the hour is going to go or what we're going to do. Because, you know, then I, I would... Uh, my ability to actually truly meet the moment and be with what is would be limited. And of course, then that would limit my ability to truly help, you know, the couple sitting in front of me. Of course. And that level of presence that you talk about, to me, that's mindfulness. What does mindfulness mean to you, Figs? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, for many years, studied Gestalt as an awareness practice. So it's almost like a, a spiritual practice it's called Gestalt Awareness Practice. And the, the main kind of our little tagline is, how can we be with what is with breath in the spirit of aloha? So how can we be with what is with breath in the spirit of aloha? So basically what that means to me is, you know, how can I truly, truly be immersed in this moment? whether that's I'm happy, sad, anxious, like actually truly be in it. Can I breathe into it, you know, as opposed to trying to get rid of it? And then can I, you know, in the spirit of aloha, which of course, you know, the Hawaiian word that means many, many, many things. It's hello, it's goodbye, it's you're welcome. It's everything all at once, right? So... Yeah. And then obviously with couples, I like to practice this form of mindfulness with couples because usually it's in a very escalated moment. 
it's all well and good, you know, you know, don't get me wrong. I know it's still really hard, right. To be sitting in a room facing the walls, you know, you know, and everything is calm around you. Um, but I prefer doing it in the trenches in the middle of a war zone, right? Because typically when a couple first comes to see me, they're two competing narratives and both of those narratives start with you're the one that's hurt me from, you know, both people I'm hurting and, and you're the one that did it, did it to me. And so they're pretty, they feel like and seem like an emotional threat to each other. So what we have to be with and be mindful of and then immersed in is something that's actually kind of unpleasant and that the couple would rather move away. They're desperately trying to get out of it. But of course, everything they do to try and not be fully immersed in this moment actually makes it worse. Right? All the attempts to get out of this moment will... Or one of the ways I put it is like, Everyone thinks they have a can of water in their hand. If I explain to my partner what they just did wrong, then maybe they'll change. But of course, that is not a can of water. That was actually a can filled with gasoline. So it may, because it'll land like it's a criticism on your partner. And just like then the partner might like, and let's say they're a mindfulness practitioner, they might, my partner's upset with me. I'm going to get real Zen about this, go inside and try and center myself, which of course, even though it may like make logical sense and it seems like a can of water, it'll actually land on their partner. Like, why aren't you really here? It looks like you're disappearing into your practice. And of course, it'll really hurt their feelings. And so, of course, that wasn't a can of water either. That was a can of gasoline. And it'll increase the flames of disconnection. And so I then have to work inside of myself to truly, truly be in the moment and not try and escape the discomfort of this conflict that I see in front of me so that I can reflect it back to them accurately. And ironically, paradoxically, my work is not to try and get them out of it. It's to actually immerse them even deeper and deeper into it. And it's through that deep immersion and awareness um, and study of it that it can turn into something else. Well, you described how you kind of look into someone else's relationship and you can help them for that reason because you're standing back and looking in. But what is your biggest challenge in your own relationships mm -hmm. when it comes to you? How do you manage when you're the person that does all of this managing yeah. and helping other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so look, I, I, I always say my number one qualification to do this work is I'm a wounded human being. How do I do it? Like I get triggered and activated and have unconscious or reactive behavior all the time. Because, you know, I'm a, I'm a traumatized human being, right? And I always like all couples work is trauma work, um, whether people like to admit it or not. And so I'm relatively decent at helping couples because I have trauma. And so that means I get challenged all the time. I'm not sitting on some mountaintop looking down, telling people what to do from some place that I've arrived. I got to do this work all day, every day. My wife's a couples therapist. Because we love each other, there are moments where it looks like we're not there for each other in some particular flavor that's important to the other person. That person's feelings get hurt. So my feelings, I'll talk about myself, my feelings get hurt. And then I have reactivity. 
whether I then shut down or blame or criticize or, you know, tell a joke or minimize what's happening. I do something that is born out of a protest of, uh, like it's an unconscious protest to try and get away from the pain of disconnection or not feeling securely bonded in a given moment of time. And then, so that's where the work really begins. So my work then begins as, can I be aware that what I just did and said or didn't do and say was actually born out of reactivity, right? And then can I ask myself, and I do, right? Like, you know, I have to ask myself, even though I have a story about where this discomfort came from, from the world outside of me, you know, it came from my wife's behavior, but that's kind of, that's a dead end. There's no really interesting information to be gained from that. Now, can I ask myself a question that's much more interesting, which is what is it that's happening inside of me and that is just mine that could elicit this unconscious and or reactive behavior? And, you know, there's an assumption I have, and obviously when I test it, it's true. It, it's because I, there's some flavor of love that I'm not getting that's really important. Now, whether that's being seen, heard, valued, loved, cared for, prioritized, you know, there, there's some flavor of love I didn't get. And because that's so important, I'm actually really hurting. Like I have a vulnerable emotion. Right? Even at first, I wasn't aware of it. So now, I, can, I, can I realize what the unmet love need is? Can I feel the vulnerable feeling that actually truly is the source of where that reactive or unconscious behavior came from? And now I have this, which often can be a, a hard work, the hard work, is now can I turn to my wife and tell her? You know the way I actually seemed like I was upset with you and I sighed or I seemed to be, you know, like pulling away from you. What actually was happening inside me was I actually, I felt like, you know, I was alone or you weren't there for me and I got sad. So I basically reverse engineer my reactivity to my vulnerability and then I share my vulnerability. I see. And, yeah, and then, and of course, when we have two people, my wife obviously is committed to doing that too, because that's where now there's a bridge where we could, you know, empathize with each other and connect with each other. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. Vulnerility yeah. is such a huge part of a healthy relationship. It really is, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. It's key. And your business is called Empathy, empathy empathy.com with an I, E-M-P-A-T-H-I. Tell me why you called it empathy.com, empathy with an I. So the first thing is the guy that owns empathy with a Y.com wouldn't sell it to me. Okay. And I probably couldn't have afforded it. So I'm here in San Francisco, so we're always like coming up with funny, new, silly spellings. Sure. So of course, that's why empathy with an I it worked practically. And then much more importantly than empathy is the key, a shared empathic experience between two people, right? And communities of people, right? Is uh, the key in order for people to feel connected to each other. And so that the first thing I have to try and help people do and have to do myself in my own marriage is be able to go from escalated moments, right? Where we seem like a threat to each other to de-escalated moments where we could have empathy for each other. And empathy being, I can actually accept that your feelings, I can actually validate your feelings, I can 
feel inside myself the pain that you're in. It matters to me and I can share, like I can actually show you that I accept, validate and I feel it and it impacts me because I love you and care about you. And, and so we're, we're trying to have those, you know, shared empathic moments because born out of those shared empathic moments is the possibility that we could then love, comfort, soothe, nurture each other. I've read that we are in a crisis with mm. the amount of porn out there that especially young men mm. are exposed to. Do you feel that being exposed to this much porn is shutting down our natural ability to have healthy sex lives? You know, the little I've, you know, read about it, you know, our brains are not built to have that much stimulation, right? Like here's, you know, what I understand is like, you know, 10,000 years ago, a young man might see like 50 eligible mates in their lifetime. Right. And now a young man might see 50 in four minutes. Right. Right. You know, yeah. it's like our brain, our brains are not actually built to handle that much stimulation. And thus there are unintended consequences that then like when it comes to our ability to be stimulated in the real world and to be actually able to connect emotionally with a primary other that suffers as a result of this kind of overstimulation and your mind seeing, you know, potential mates like flashed in front of them sure. over and over and over again. Sure. So yeah, look, I, I have no doubt it, it doesn't help. Right. The one thing I would say is for what I, what I see with couples, and this is unfortunate, is that like uh, people only change out of inspiration or desperation. And you can count on one hand the number of people in human history that have changed out of inspiration. So the one little silver lining about, let's say, you know, overuse of porn or like cheating or overuse of video games or over blaming or over shutting down is hopefully it'll get us to a crisis point sooner rather than later. And that will be an opportunity to actually shift and do so. Do it'll, it'll hurt enough. It'll be painful enough that there will be a window of opportunity where we actually could do the personal work necessary to be able to actually be truly connected to ourselves, tolerate our own internal experience, and then to be able to connect with another and the world outside you without having to mediate it through pick your addiction or poison or whatever you want. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was curious about that because it's so readily available now, even more right. so than say 20 years ago, much more so. Right. And I was wondering if you'd noticed a difference in your practice and how many people have come to you and found, you know, they're experiencing dysfunction possibly yeah. as a result of that. Well, I, it certainly comes up. It wouldn't be the predominant reason the dominant reason of why people come to see me, but it definitely is an issue that comes up for sure. Let's say that scenario is true that a couple comes to see me because one person has been using porn a lot and turning towards porn and thus turning away from their partner for, for regulation and, you know, comfort. Um, the first thing I have to deal with is 
the cycle that the couple were in together that could have led to that happening, right? To try and deal with the betrayal itself, right? And then if we can do those two things well, if we can see and make sense of like, oh, I get what's happening when you feel uncomfortable inside or there are parts of you that are hard for you to own and share with another, it's easy to turn elsewhere. Um, but of course, when you turn elsewhere, it really hurts your partner, leaves them feeling abandoned, and no wonder they'd be upset and disappointed and feel betrayed with you, which of course will make you feel worse, and now you're more likely to turn elsewhere. If we can get to a place where we can see, even though let's say that behavior is maladaptive, it's not good for your relationship, but at least if we can put it in the context of I can see and understand what's happening in the system between both of you then maybe we, there's a platform we could stand on together to work together as a team for how do we tackle this going forward. Because if we go straight into what are we going to do about your porn use, most likely all I'm going to manage to do is shame someone and make them close off and be even less likely to feel safe in the therapeutic container. So one has to be quite skillful and, you know, earn an alliance with both people in a couple, even if there is a behavior that for sure at some point we're really going to have to explore like, hey, what's this about? What are we going to do? You know, the order of things is actually quite important. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm told that one of the things that sets you apart is your sense of humor, that you're <laughs> really funny. What do your uh, clients say about you, about your humor? Well, look, one of the things that I find like is very helpful is if you're going to give someone a reflection of themselves, right? Like you always want to do it with love and kindness, right? Mm -hmm. For sure, right? And make sure they yes. always know that I love you. You make sense to me. Like even if we're talking about there's this thing you do that isn't particularly helpful. But one of the great things is there's another way to do that. And then you could do it in a completely exaggerated way, right? Which is what c comics do, right? It's like, so let's say there's someone that um, every time they're upset with their spouse, they, they talk about um, political ideology that they, in, in public that they know their spouse doesn't like. Right. Right. They, they start sharing stuff about like how much they love Trump, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. So look, uh, what I'll do then to reflect that behavior is I will then start saying, so look, I know today you've gone, you bought your MAGA hat and you've got your mic microphone or your megaphone. And as soon as your husband's going to be like shopping for cereal, you're going to be, you know, like trying to, uh, trying to hold a rally in support of Trump in the supermarket. Right. right. Now, obviously, that's a huge, gross exaggeration from what it is they might say at a dinner party to yeah. kind of to, to do a little stab, a little poke of their spouse, their husband. But by exaggerating the behavior, I've made it safe for them to actually... Firstly, they don't have to take it so serious. They can laugh at themselves. They don't have to feel threatened that they're being accused of doing something. And yet, at the same time they might be able to see the reflection of, wow, this really is something I do when I'm hurting. It's a reaction, right? It's a, you know, as opposed to being the source of what I'm really feeling, right? right. And I, I love, someone told me, I actually had a client once, a Russian client shared this Russian saying, in every joke, there's a little joke. Uh -huh. there's, in every joke, there's only a little bit of joke, right? I, 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 I Like, most of what's yes. in a joke is truth, 
Right. That's why it's funny. And so the joke is only a tiny part. So when I joke, I manage to get past clients, mm. gatekeepers or their superego. I manage to get past their protector, like the gatekeepers or the, you know, the, the people guarding their sense of self are temporarily distracted by having a good laugh so that some of the truth gets in. Biggs, can you tell us a story about an actual client or a couple that you've worked right. with that, that, you know, you really helped them to transform into a different kind of right. improved relationship? Yeah, well, look, obviously I have to be very careful of people's of identities as a licensed marriage family therapist. But, you know, pretty recently I had a couple come to see me that were already, they're already divorced. Mm. And they had gone to couples counseling and the couples counselor actually advised after one of the sessions, the couple counselor called one spouse as they were driving home and told them, look, there's no hope you should divorce your spouse, which is just like, you look, as a couples counselor, it's, it's hard to fathom another couples counselor doing such a thing. It's just awful. And so they actually, by the time they came to see me, they were divorced. They were living in separate states. And we had to do sessions at first over video conference, right? With mm-hmm. them in, in two different locations. And, you know, within the space, giving them a framework of being able to at first see how, come here, both of you are hurting and both of you have done stuff to get us to a place like this instead of trying to like, shame either one of them or get either one of them to take accountability for their behavior, trying to work on this, seeing the system we're both in, we're able to get to a place that they could go visit each other and we could do some of the sessions in person. And then we're able to go from doing some sessions in person to actually having moments where they're able to really feel the grief and the pain of everything that happened and cry together and start to be able to comfort each other to the point where where they are now is they're back living together in their primary home and just feeling so grateful to be back connected to each other and that you know like obviously there's still grief there at the time they spent where they lost each other right but they're they're thankful every day that they managed to find their way back to each other wow that's a powerful story that really and look to be honest like that's a three-month process wow that's from impossible like it's seeming absolutely impossible and literally separated by you know plane rides to back connected and loving each other more wow, that was fast. than ever before. Yeah. What are the percentages of people you work with virtually over the internet compared to people who actually come to see you in person? Yeah. I would say it's 90-10. Oh. Like I, 90% of the time I work with people in person. Now okay. I'd love to work with more people virtually and you know, I have a team, I have nine other therapists on my team and so I'm, I'm counselors and coaches. So we, we're actually working towards trying to see more people virtually because we feel like it, it actually works very well with couples, especially if the couple are in the same room together. Right. Right. Because if the couple's in the same room together, the aliveness that we need to harness to create connection, it's right there, right? That makes it really good. And then, of course, the couple, we would have to, there has to be a manageable level of escalation for it to work. Like there, there can't be any domestic violence or risk of domestic violence for in-person or online couple right. work. 
And then the other thing is, if we're going to do virtual or, you know, true video conference Zoom or something like we're doing, mm-hmm. the couple has to be able to stay in study of their cycle to the point that they can stay in the frame of the video. If they're not able to stay in the frame, one person gets upset. I'm out of here. I got to go to the other room or I'm out of the house. Then yeah. like, it's not going to work. You've got to see right. someone in person, right? So yeah. there has to be an ability to stay with inside your window of tolerance to study your escalated moments, even yeah, if they start sense. to happen in real time, which hopefully when I work with couples, I love when they get escalated in real time because it's brilliant. Part of the great thing about being a couples counselor is we get I get to work I don't get just to talk about things conceptually, right? That's the easy part. Like I, like you and I talking conceptually is awesome. But I also have to have this other skill, which is I got to be a craftsperson, an artist, which is how do I take people in a living, breathing moment of time where they're really threatened and threatening to actually feeling their limbic system literally letting down and not feeling threatened anymore, and then being able to then have this empathic experience with each other. So that I feel is the art, you know, the craft of my work. But I do obviously like talking about, you know, the philosophy and the methodology of it all too. Of course. Yeah. So what's the price point like? Is it the same? Would it be the same price online as it would be if people came to your office or what's that? Yeah. I mean, look, the prices vary by clinician and or coach. And that just depends on experience. Of course. And, you know, I'm definitely, to see me personally, definitely on the highest end of the fee range. Mm-hmm. Just, but then we have people at every level. And then we also have online courses and free tools. So what we try and do is make sure that anybody that wants help, and that's the whole mission of empathy, is we want to try and make effective fun, engaging, uh, help for relationship available to everyone, independent of location, independent of cost or fee. Um, And so that's why we built the company and the tools we have and the ability to do in-person and online at all different price points. That's great. And your online courses, are do they show up on your website? Empathy? Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah they're, right now, we only have one online course that shows up on the website, and that's uh-huh. the flagship course, and that's the Learning to Love Better, the Conflict Solution. Right. And that's, you know, I, that's my attempt to put as much as possible in a self-paced course that someone could get on their own without coming to see me or someone on my team. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then there are people, obviously, that do it totally on their own. And then there are people that do that course in conjunction with counseling or coaching. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then I uh, built a quiz. I built, built this whole web app for couples that's free. I don't want to like overwhelm your listeners with information. But like you can go do this. You answer a bunch of questions. If you go to empathy.com and hit the quiz link, you answer a bunch of questions about yourself. It'll then send you this reflection, this, your, we call it your self-discovery report. It'll tell you who you are in love and relationship from an attachment systems theory perspective, attachment theory and systems theory perspective. And then if you elect to invite your partner or spouse, they then would take the quiz via the invite link you sent them, and then they'll get their self-discovery report. It'll tell them who they themselves are in love and relationship from an attachment perspective. But then most importantly and most interestingly, because now we have both of your answers, 
we then give you your relationship system report. And then in that relationship system report, it shows you who you are together as one entity. Wow. How you co-create the worst moments in your relationship and all the steps you need to do to make love work for the rest of your life. Wow. And that's all free things? Yeah, that, that's all free. My, as you can imagine, my wife is not too happy with me spending all the money that it costs to develop that free process. But again, look, like, look, I'm here in San Francisco. I'm like, you know, couples therapist to many of the Silicon Valley and San Francisco elites. And it kills me that I could, there's only so many people I can help, like one couple at a time in my office. So I... I love what I do. Like I said, I feel so lucky that I found this thing that I happen to be pretty decent at. And I want to help as many people as possible. So that whether wow, that's free that's or like, like just a one-off purchase, a course, or whether it's counseling or coaching, uh, yeah, whatever I can do. I, I just love your passion for this oh, topic. It's, it's, it's awesome. You. It really is. I want to ask you a question about bullying because I yeah. always ask a question about this topic. And uh, do you have a story? I don't know whether yeah. you were bullied or whether maybe you were a yeah. bully or whether you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference. Maybe you can help me talk, think through whether mindfulness would make a difference. But I, I'll tell you, you know, I haven't fully integrated this experience myself. so. Like, does it even count as bullying? I guess it does. Like, when I was about 11, 12 years old, my family moved from the suburbs uh -huh. to the inner city. Yes. Right. So we moved from, like, you know, tract housing in Ireland into, like, the big red brick houses. Right. And um, I always thought, like, I was the center, and maybe all kids do, I was the center of this group of friends. Mm -hmm. If anything, I thought I was the leader of this group of friends. Once it became known to these group of friends I had that I was leaving. And I don't know how many months ago, like there's like maybe there's three months or six months once it sure. became clear. And maybe it's not, you know, a kid's mind. Maybe it was a month that I was leaving. Those friends totally rejected. Oh, wow. Like um, nobody, nobody talked to me. Uh, we played on the same soccer team. We, you know, changed in the same change room. No one talked to me. There were rumors spread about me that I said terrible things about people's mom, mothers, and like um, the soccer coach tried to intervene. Camp counselors tried to intervene. And to this day, not one of those people have ever talked to me. And so... Wow. As a kid, that was devastating, like yes. just devastating. Even after I moved into the center of Dublin City, I tried to stay on the same soccer team. I'd get the bus out to the suburbs and I tried to keep playing with them. But like, again, it's still very confusing to me that nobody took. Yes. And I, it was so painful for me and I was so ashamed. Like as a kid, I was so ashamed of being rejected by my friends that I never told my parents. Oh. Now, my dad's a therapist and my mom is a social worker and works with you know youth at the time and stuff, right? But it was so shameful for me to have been disowned that I couldn't tell them, wow. you know, what really what I was going through. And so, and I would say like to this day, you know, like, you know, I, I can tell a good story. I can be funny. I can be charismatic or whatever, but there is still a part of me that 
can feel I'm really only a hair's breadth away from being rejected in community. And especially mm-hmm. with guys, right? Mm-hmm. So it's had, I always say like outside of my, you know, family of origin wounding stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that experience was the most painful thing that's ever happened to me that has a big impact on me, you know, and how I relate to the world and, and people. And maybe look, it even plays a part in how I'm a couples therapist, right? Because the work I do as a couples therapist, I'm going to help people do this one thing. I'm not going to help them. They're not going to stay with me forever. I want them to be able to co-regulate each other and then leave. Of course. Right. So they don't, they're, the idea is like that we do some work together and it, it ends, right? As opposed to individual counseling where the person could be with me for years and years and years and years, right? That's a harder relationship, right? It's more vulnerable for me. Yeah. So yeah, that's... That's wow. 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 That's incredible. That must have been so tough. I want to move forward and ask you five quick answer questions. The first one is this. Who is one person that influenced mindfulness in your life? Well, one to pick one person. That's a good one. I would say the person that probably influenced mindfulness the most of my life is um, Christine Price. Christine Chris Price is, uh, you know, a Gestalt awareness practice teacher, lived at Esalen, arrived at Esalen herself when she was 17 or 18 years old and, you know, studied with the creators of Esalen and, uh, and Gestalt therapy. And so that's when I first really, you know, I lived there in 2003, 2004 and studied with her for like five or six years after that. Mm-hmm. She's probably had the biggest, she was my first mindfulness teacher and longest probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it helps me feel like I have some autonomy and control over my life. Like the world's not happening. Like it's an amazing difference when you feel the world is just happening to you versus you're able to, you know, like be aware of what's happening inside you and make choices and decisions that are then empowered through your awareness versus just reacting. It sure results in a hell of a lot less suffering, you know, for me personally, you know, I don't know how, like I cannot understate how much less I suffer when I'm able to be mindful of my own experience and see the world from that perspective versus, only see what the world is doing to me and how powerless I am over it, you know? Um, So yeah, huge, huge, profound difference in the amount I suffer through practicing mindfulness. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice or is it? Well, no, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like I said, you know, a lot of the work I do and then just in my life, in general, the first thing that happens if I feel threatened is I stop breathing. And I, that's just what human beings do in general, yes. contract. So in a moment where I feel threatened or I see something threatening in my environment, I am able to be aware of what just happened inside me. And then I'm mm-hmm. able to come back home. And how I can come back home is like actually to inhabit my own body. And how I inhabit my own body is through breath. The first mm-hmm. thing that happens, I might be talking to you, but if I got triggered, like you might see, it mightn't look like anything has changed, but I've noticed that I'm contracting. And the sort of very first thing I'm going to do 
isn't going to try and come back home into my own experience. How I do that is infusing my body with my breath, aware breath. So there's all of this is happening like in the background of the conversation. I'm feeling me as I see you and how I make that circular awareness shift is through my breath. And can you recommend a book that's related to mindfulness and possibly related to relationships and couples? Well, look, I'll tell you the book I recommend the most to individual clients is Tara Brock's Radical Acceptance. Ah, That's my number one, which, you know, is a Buddhist approach to, you know, to understanding shame and, and transforming shame. Right. I find that to be immensely powerful for me and for other people. Can you recommend an app which can help? You know, the only app I have any experience in with at all, I mean, look, I, empathy.com was highly inspired by, I mean, obviously empathy.com is great. You get weekly little evocative one sentence, two sentence reminders, and you can change them to every day. Oh, so that's actually an app. Well, it's a web app. It's not, but you can do it. It's not a mobile app. Okay. But but, but I was, a lot of the design of empathy was inspired by Headspace. Oh, okay. I love Headspace. And then the other one that actually, because I've explored doing some work with them, mindfulness and relationship, but I've decided not to create content for them. But so I'm familiar with it and I like it is Simple Habit. Okay. Because Simple Habit, you know, there's just short or little meditations and they're pretty, it's a pretty simple app to use. So Headspace, I think is still awesome and the leader in the space. Obviously, CAM is a good one. C-A-L-M is a really good one. Uh, 10% Happier is terrible. And I see, I, I know, I've been here in San Francisco. I know too many of these apps, mm. actually. But oh. I still think Headspace is the leader in the, in the space. And it's probably the most innovative and continually adding more stuff. Right. But CAM and 10% Happier are really good and simple, simple habit. We'll put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. So yeah, check out the show notes. I wanted to ask you about your opinion of the series of books, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Yeah. Do you encourage people to use those resources? No, I mean, look, I I don't. How would I say this? Like, I I mean, I've nothing against them and I don't think they're bad per se, but it's pretty, it's surface level. You know, it's terrible. It's just not like the the work that I do. I try and get to the core of what someone's vulnerability is and where there's like unmet, like unfinished emotional business. Mm -hmm. We go try and get right into the center of it and go right to the place where it hurts the most and then trying to transform those moments. So I'm always like, if someone wants to put a bandaid on an issue, don't bother coming to see me. I right. see. I yeah. would look at the five love languages as look, band-aids are great though. It's a band-aid. It's a helpful little like tidbit to work out what someone's flavor of love. Like it's very helpful. It doesn't really get to the real core of the issue. So I would like if you want to supplement the core work you do with, you know, then a supplemental material like the five love languages, great. But at some point in your life, I sure hope you do the real deep work of getting to know your most vulnerable self, feeling it, daring to stay in it, sharing that part of you with another in a living, breathing moment of time that's going to be pretty, pretty scary work to do. But that's how we really transform 
So anyway, that's my honest opinion. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you sharing so much with us today, Figs. It's been really great to talk to you about all this. Thank you so much for having me on. I really love our time talking and I appreciate your listeners that made it this far listening to me. Spout yeah, on. absolutely. And once more, I'll shout out your website is yeah. empathy with an I at the end, not a Y, empathy.com. Check it out. And there's even a free tool there that yeah. you can use. So that sounds amazing. Thank you so much for being here. You're so welcome. Thank you so much, Bruce. You're welcome. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.